Hello again. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. I hope you're well. Uh, in this episode, it's episode 370, so it's all dedicated to audience questions. And uh, this is where we turn it over to uh, the people who uh, listen to us. And they basically uh, throw questions at us and we pretend we know what we're talking about. And we're going to be talking about uh, the, the gravity map and a, a few thoughts from Eric on uh, what that might mean for his home country. Uh, also, um, questions about light, space-time, that one comes up never, uh, black holes, even less. Uh, gravity is uh, becoming a common theme uh, uh, from the audience, so we'll, uh, we'll tackle a couple of different elements of gravity, and we'll also tackle elements. And much, much more coming up on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, and joining us as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you this fine day? I am quite well, sir. And uh, what about you? All good? <laughs> All good, thanks. Yeah, mm. it is. It's a lovely sunny day here in Sydney. It looks like spring has arrived, which is... Uh, a bit early, really. Um, well, actually, it's only two days on these days. Yes, well, I, I think it's come here much, much earlier than normal. We usually have fairly cold weather, sometimes into um, late yeah. September. Yeah. Uh, we've been getting, uh, yeah. you know, late uh, August and into uh, into September, uh, some pretty big numbers on the on the thermometer, um, numbers that you don't usually see around that time of year. So, uh, yeah, certainly uh, spring broke through real quick. This, this year, mm. uh, which I don't mind. I prefer the warm weather, must say. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I live with people who prefer cold weather, so I can't win I can't win that argument. Mm. No. But uh, it's my time to shine for the next uh, six months, so there that'll be go. good. There you go. Uh, shall we uh, get into the audience questions, Fred? There's probably nothing else to do, so we might as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's jump on the first one. This comes from Eric. Hello, Andrew and Fred. My name is Arul Krishnamurthy. I'm recording this message from Edinburgh in Scotland. The question I have is the GOC gravity map uh, that I came across a couple of years ago. As per this uh, GOC gravity map, Gravity is not uniform across the globe. It is higher in some places. It is lower in some places. What I'm interested in is in this uh, gra GOC gravity map, the southern part of India where I'm originally from is the lowest gravity levels in the whole globe. I want to understand the relationship between the gravity levels mapped by GOC and escape velocity. Uh, does the low levels of GOCE mapping means uh, the if there is a launch from there, does it need uh, a lower fuel because the escape velocity will be lower? Thank you very much. I'm a regular listener of your show. Uh, again, oh, both of you are doing a wonderful job. I like your show. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope I've got your name right, Eric. I, I think I picked that up, but uh, I might be wrong and I apologize. But uh, yes, and I, that, that Scottish accent was absolutely <laughs> thick and fast there, I reckon. Um, 
Uh, no, he's in Edinburgh now, but uh, hails from India. And uh, you know about the gravity map, Fred, and I, I think uh, they've they've updated it because we both uh, thought before we started the show that um, Australia was the part of the world with the lowest gravity <laughs> measures, but that's no longer the case. Maybe. Uh, that's right. And that highlights one of the aspects of what we're talking about here, which is that uh, the gravity um, as measured from space, uh, looking down, mapping the the differences in gravity uh, across the Earth's surface, they change with time. Uh, so it's not you know necessarily related to where a country is or where mountains are or things of that sort. It may well be uh, more to do with what's going on under under the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, um, uh, what um, our listener referred to and delighted is in Edinburgh as one of my favorite cities in the world <laughs> having lived there for a long time uh, the, uh, is the is the GOCE da- data that now that mission uh, is an European Space Agency mission uh, and it's a, a once again a gravitational uh, sampling mission the one that um, I thought was going to come our way in this question, was an earlier one, uh, which is a NASA mission called GRACE. Uh-huh. GRACE, uh, Grace uh, was the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. Uh, and uh, GRACE has got actually nicer animations on its website than GOCE, G-O-C-E. Uh, so, but they tell the same story. Um, so what we're looking at here is uh, uh, basically a map of variations in gravity across the uh, Earth's surface. And that variation is it, it, it's, uh, ca- um, corrected for the slight variation you get because of the Earth's rotation, because at the equator you're very, very slightly lighter than you are at the pole mm-hmm. uh, in terms of your weight. Uh, so it, it deals with all that. Um, and what we wind up with is a map of what's called a gravity anomaly, in other words, uh, a map of where you know things things are uh, are different from the average. If I can put it that way, that's the bottom line right. there. Um, so the gravity anomaly is uh, essentially, as, as I said, it's the, the the variation of of that um, of that parameter. Uh, over space. I'm desperately looking, as you can probably tell, Andrew, for um, a scale on the gravity anomaly diagrams yeah. uh, because they're, they're very, very small anomalies that we're measuring. Um, uh, so, I, I th- you know, I think the numbers are in, in thousands of the constant of gravitational attraction, uh, and they vary by very small numbers. Uh, so these variations um, are only slight compared with the overall gravitational pull of the Earth. So you're not going to feel anything different. Uh, now mm-hmm. uh, there, there are certainly uh, when you look at the um, the detailed gravitational maps, and uh, certainly Grace, which is just the the one that I'm finding easiest to access at the moment. Um, they do uh, tell you about mountains 
uh, on Earth. Uh, a lot of um, the you know the mountainous regions of the Earth, like the Andes, like the Himalayas, have a strongly positive gravitational anomaly, uh, and that figures because those mountains are quite dense, and you're flying over a more dense region of the Earth's surface. Yeah, uh, but um, some of these variations are much more subtle. Uh, and come about because of ocean currents. Uh, and that's why uh, the spacecraft, uh, this particular one was called Gravity Recovering Climate Experiment, because it's all about how things like ice, uh, you know, ice masses, uh, ocean currents from those ice masses, how they flow, if they're melting, uh, all of those things can be picked up by looking at these gravitational anomalies, which tells mm -hmm. you how sensitive the instrument is. Um, but I think there are also um, uh, possibly uh, things that are related to the internal structure of the Earth, uh, because we've got not far below the surface, we've got this semi-fluid um, semi, uh, region called the mantle, uh, which is where the magma comes from that boils out into volcanoes. And that stuff's moving around. Uh, it's kind of sloshing around as the Earth rotates. Yes. And so you would expect uh, a lower, higher and lower regions of density uh, to, to move with respect to the Earth. And that's what the gravity animations show, that there is movement. Uh, some of it comes from things like ocean currents, but some of it probably comes from uh, deeper layers. Mm -hmm. um, now, our listener is absolutely right. There's a low area uh, in, to the south of India, and um, that um, may well be related to things happening underneath underneath the crust. Uh, uh, just coming to the uh, the question though, at the end of that uh, that lovely audio, uh, it's not likely to be to make enough of a difference if you've got a low gravity region to the escape velocity of Earth okay. uh, in that point because um, it's such a tiny. A difference from the you know from the overall uh, gravitational pull of the Earth. Mm. What makes a much bigger difference? And once again, uh, that's uh, appropriate for the south of India. The nearer the equator you are, uh, the the more of a, a a push you get by the Earth's rotation uh, yeah. to get yourself into space. Bit of a uh, slingshot. A slingshot, exactly. That's right. Yeah. As the Earth's rotating, it gives you an extra about half a kilometer per second on the equator, uh, which, given that you know you, you need to get uh, horizontal velocity. Sorry, I've moved my screen there. Uh, you need to get horizontal velocity of uh, uh, nearly eight kilometers per second to go into orbit. If you can get a free half kilometer per second, you're actually winning. It saves you rocket fuel. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm. So the gravity effect, probably not an advantage, but being closer to the equator is, is the bonus. That, that, that's it's, correct. It's interesting looking at the map. Uh, it's definitely a very big blob of lower gravity uh, uh, over the Indian uh, yeah. peninsula, if you like, but uh, down into the Indian Ocean, that area, yeah. and leaking down towards southwestern Australia. But there's also some low gravity pockets on the east and west coast of North America yes. and the tip yeah. of South America and uh, up into Asia as well, so north of India uh, and down around Antarctica, which is fascinating. So there's um, and, and the places where there's the highest amount of gravity, uh, northern Australia, New Guinea, uh, up into uh, some of those Asian countries 
and up around uh, where am I looking? Um, Middle East, up around the Middle East and Europe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know that this is the thing. Like this, uh, um, the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean's got a high gravitational pull as well, um, yeah. and that you know you intuitively think that if it was to do with the thickness of the Earth's crust, the, the crust is thinner in the oceans, um, and yes, that might account for the low gravity in the Indian Ocean there, but <laughs> the middle of the Atlantic's much, much higher. So again, it, it's, it speaks of things going on beneath the surface, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, makes for an interesting discussion. Uh, gravity something that uh, we we sort of understand in pockets, boom, boom. But um, overall, we still really have a lot to learn about it. Yeah. Now, uh, let's move on. To, thanks, Eric. Uh, let's move on to our next question from Buddy. Hello, Space. That's Buddy from Oregon again. Here's a quick one. Um, can light stand still? If it, it does get stopped, what happens to it? Um, um, when a black hole absorbs light, does it gain mass? Um, thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Hmm. He's a real thinker, buddy. He comes <laughs> up with some interesting concepts from time to time. Can light stand still? I think the answer is yes. They did an experiment not so long ago that we talked about, and they they did actually manage to stop a photon, did they not? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, I don't know the details of it, uh, mm. but... Um, uh, but it, you're, you're right, uh, light has been shown to be stationary. Um, and I don't know too much about the physics that lets you do that. Uh, the, the normal, you know, the normal process of refraction uh, as light passes from a, a, a less dense medium to a higher density medium, that slows down the speed of light. Um, it's slower in water than it is in air, and it's also slower in glass than it is in air. And that's why you get the phenomenon of refraction is how we make lenses work uh, because of the speed of light slowing down in a medium. But I think the techniques used to stop light are quite different. Um, I mean, light stops when it hits a surface. Hey, I was uh, going to say, it's like when you hit a tennis ball, it stops fractionally before it bounces in the opposite direction. Yeah, usually, yeah. What, what I was going to say, certainly in the case of you know light hitting hitting a, an opaque surface, that then it's being absorbed. So the light does stop, but yes. at the same time it ceases to exist. It stops being a photon anymore. Um, and but this these experiments uh, showed that you could you could actually stop a photon and then let it go again. Mm. Um, uh, I should check up on that stuff. It's um, it's quite neat physics. Um, which uh, which uh, ha ha certainly has applications in uh, some of the more esoteric sorts of experiments that I think uh, people are doing in physics laboratories, uh, not like the ones I did in my physics laboratory at school, <laughs> where he stops things, uh, usually bits of paper as they flew across the room, uh, being aimed at by another fellow student. So uh, to the other part of Buddy's question... Um, does is does light increase the mass of black holes? Um, uh, I, I guess the answer is yes, because light is light is energy, um, and so if you've got photons being absorbed by a black hole, uh, then in some small way its mass must increase. 
Okay. I stand to be possibly corrected on that. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? But, um, the, the answers to your questions, buddy, at this point are yes and possibly yes, we can say. But yes, we can stop light. They have they have actually done it in a um, in a lab, I believe. You'd have, yeah, yep. If you do a bit of a web search, you might be able to find yeah, we, information we about that because it. it was a very recent uh, experiment that they've released a paper on. Uh, thank you, buddy. Let's go to Neil in Melbourne. Uh, he um, says, there's been talk recently about the energy that causes the universe to expand coming from black holes. If this is so, then wouldn't we see the space-time around or near a black hole expanding at a faster rate than that further away from the black holes, for example, between galaxies? Or is that in the spaces between the filaments of the cosmic web? Wouldn't the filaments of the cosmic web be expanding faster? And that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, and, and yes, so I have to say, <coughs> excuse me, we did cover this story a few weeks ago uh, that um, there was some evidence that uh, black holes um, were the source of dark energy. Yeah. Um, now, I did understand it when I read the paper, I think, but I can't remember what the details were. Um and it was one that seemed to, what was the story? It seemed to be something that would be um, not in the way that Neil is suggesting, limiting, uh, limited to the immediate vicinity of black holes. Um, uh, I, um, I'm trying to remember the, the terminology. I haven't really got time to look it up now, but the, 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 certainly the idea was that what a black hole does actually affects the whole universe um, so that you're not just, um, you know, increasing the dark energy around a black hole uh, and and therefore making it lumpy, if I can put it that way, uh, because we think dark energy is the same everywhere. That's that's the, um, you know, that that's the current thinking. Uh, and so for that theory to hold water, uh, there must be a way uh, in which it can account for that. Uh, And I'm sorry, it was probably a couple of months ago, or rather more than that, that we looked at this, and I did look at the mechanics. And yes, I was convinced at the time that that might be the source of it, but um, I'm afraid I can't grab it from the depths of my mind at the moment. Okay. Uh, Maybe maybe we should revisit that. Possibly so, because it it is really, uh, it was a really. um, It was, yeah, significant. uh, Yeah, and a fairly significant claim that um, may hold water. You don't. You don't know because there's um, there's so many unknowns around dark energy, black holes, and dark matter. Uh, we just know all these things exist. That maybe they coexist. Maybe they rely on each other. We we haven't quite put the pieces together, but um, we're chipping away at it. I suppose that would be the best way to describe it. Maybe I don't know. Chipping chipping away. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Battle there, must, can say. There, there must be a dad joke in there, but I can't uh, grab it at the moment. Possibly so. Uh, so, Neil, um, we, we'll get back to you. Watch this space. There you go. There's the dad joke. <laughs> thanks. You wanted it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You're regretting it now. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Neil. Um, I'm, uh, I'm just looking at the um, the article in Physics World about the, uh, oh, about, okay. about the linking. Um, and, and it is... Uh, it's to do with the 
the idea that maybe black holes aren't singularities. Uh, so uh, this is physics world I'm quoting. Most models of black holes suggest that at their heart is a singularity, a point at which mass is squeezed into an infinitesimally small point and thus becomes infinitely dense. The new cosmological coupling replaces this singularity with vacuum energy proposed as the source of dark energy. Ah. So, so um, it's a, it, it, that, that, that was the thing that I was trying to get my head around. It's a coupling issue, cosmological coupling. That was the, uh, that was the bottom line. Now, there's a lot of text here, which I'm time to read now, uh, but that, I think, is the, is the heart of the matter. Okay. Very good. All right. Uh, thank you, Neil. Great to hear from you. This is, we'll, we'll probably talk about it more. It's, uh, it's one of those areas that seems to keep spawning interest and questions. So uh, I, d I don't doubt we'll get some more questions as a result of your question, Neil. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, let's uh, move to our next question from uh, Ula. Hello, guys. Ulla here from Sweden. Thank you guys for an awesome podcast. I uh, just discovered it a couple of weeks ago and I'm hooked. Uh, I have a question regarding black holes and charge. As we all know, black holes squeeze things down to very, very small um, sizes, like into a form of matter we don't understand even like a point like mass, then how can it be that if an electron enters the event horizon and gets squashed down to basically nothing, how can that leave an electrical charge when the actual electron is destroyed? Wouldn't the charge be destroyed along with it? That's my question. So thank you very much again, guys. Okay, thanks, Ola. Uh, so the question basically is an electron gets um, dragged into a black hole and spaghettified or squashed or whatever. Uh, what happens to the charge? Um, yeah, uh, so the, that, that's, the, there is... Um, I'm just reading about charged black holes here. <laughs> oh, okay. Um it's yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um and it sounds as though the charge uh is not destroyed. Oh because um, the sentence I'm reading here, which comes from Wikipedia, charged black holes, since the electromagnetic repulsion in compressing an electrically charged mass is dramatically greater than the gravitational attraction by about forty orders of magnitude. It is not expected that black holes with a significant electric charge will be formed in nature. So, um, yeah, make of that what you will. <laughs> I'm trying to. You're getting into the realm of um, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Yeah, well, well that's right. So, um, so, so, you know, well, this question is, is great. Uh, if an electron drops into a black hole, what happens to that negative charge that it's got? Um, and what this is suggesting is that that um, actually it's suggesting it wouldn't be preserved, I think. 
Let me um, read that again. The electromagnetic repulsion in compressing an electrically charged mass is dramatically greater than the gravitational attraction. So I think what it's saying is that that would not contribute to the charge of the black hole. Uh, So um, you don't don't get a a significantly charged uh, uh, black hole in nature. Uh, There are... um, there are uh, a, a category of charged black holes that exist in theory. Huh. Um, in fact, um, just to, just to to go through the you know a quick itinerary of types of black holes, uh, the Schwarzschild black hole, which is um, Schwarzschild was the uh, physicist who in 1915 solved Einstein's equations of relativity to basically calculate what a black hole would look like and then promptly died on the on the Eastern Front in the First World War, actually of an illness, not of injuries. Uh, Schwarzschild black hole has no uh, rotation, angular momentum, and no charge, so that's a kind of clean one. A Kerr black hole, K-E-R-R, has angular momentum or rotation, but no charge. A Reissner-Nordstrom black hole has no angular momentum, does have electrical charge, uh, and a Kerr-Newman black hole has both angular momentum and an electrical charge. And I think the suggestion here is that the latter two don't exist in nature. Oh, okay. I think we've wandered off the question a bit here, uh, Still. Andrew. But, um, yeah, we're <laughs> as always, we're learning a lot on these things. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, the curiosity of our audience spawns all sorts of interesting Discussions, I think. Yeah, uh, I'll, try, I'll try and find out a bit more clearly what happens to an electron if it falls into a black hole. Okay. Thanks, Ola. Uh, lovely to hear from you and glad you love the podcast and welcome aboard. Uh, let's um, get a question from Missouri. Michael uh, says, hello, Andrew and Fred. Uh, I've been crazy about space uh, stuff since I was a kid, and some would say I'm even a space nut. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for the last four months and have run out of episodes already. Wow. Seriously. Wow. Uh, Love the show. My question to Professor Watson is about about gravity. How far away does gravity uh, uh, affect objects in space? I know everything in the solar system tugs at each other, like the sun pulling on Jupiter and even Pluto pulling on the sun slightly. But how does... Uh, how far does that reach? Does Pluto pull on Alpha Centauri's system? Uh, what about a galaxy five billion light years away? Does that very distant galaxy pull on us? Just how far does the effect of gravity actually reach? Thank you. Can't wait to hear the answer to this. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> well, we do, actually. <laughs> I figured you would. That's one yeah. I thought we would know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it goes on forever. Um it's sort of infinite. Um, now, having said that, uh, because the uh, if we turn turn it into a force, it's not actually a force. It's a distortion of space. But thinking of it as a force for a moment, it's an inverse square law that relates to that force. So, um, if you you know if if you stand uh, twice as far away. Uh, from a, gravitation, a gravitating object as you were before, you'd feel four times the, the less gravity because it's the square one over the square of the distance. 
is the uh, strength of the gravity. It's re- related to that. In fact, that's Newton's law of gravity. Uh-huh. GM1, M2 over R squared. Uh, gravitational constant times the product of the two masses over the um, square of the distance between them. So the further apart things are, the weaker the gravity gets. And it gets weaker very quickly uh, because it's this square relationship. It's not just going up linearly. Uh, And what that means is that it doesn't take very far for you not to be able to feel it, but it's still there. The effect is... Uh, uh, is actually one uh, that you there is gravity there from so so you're talking about Pluto and Alpha Centauri uh, at the distance of Alpha and Alpha Centauri Pluto does exert a gravitational pull but it is so minute uh, that it's completely swamped out by much more local masses mm. more local objects okay no that's fascinating I didn't realise that it, um, something as small as Pluto could have an effect. On something yeah, it doesn't so have far, any real effect, but, but, but theoretically, that's right. It does. Yeah, yeah. it's it's. I this is one of my lame um, uh, examples. Uh, you're standing on the beach and you get hit by a wave. You feel its effect, but if uh, wave, if you're in the middle of the ocean and a wave of similar power sweeps through you, you don't really feel it because you're not at the impact point. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. A vain attempt to understand. I think um, yes, yeah. I, I think you're talking about. I mean, wave motion itself is a really interesting thing, and uh, we know that gravitational waves exist. So there's uh, gravity comes in waves as well. Mm. So there's there's some some merit to your analogy there, Andrew. Yeah. Just a little bit loopy. Okay. Um, Thanks, Michael. And to you also, welcome aboard. Uh, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Cramming 370-odd episodes into four months, that's dedication. We should give you a badge. Uh, But thanks for um, uh, sending us your question. Uh, Dermot in Sydney says, uh, Dear Andrew and Fred, uh, to create the range of elements we find today on Earth and within our solar system, everything from hydrogen to uranium, required the fusion energy of stellar nurseries, merging white dwarfs, and a massive supernova, according to my research, he says. What are the latest theories on how many times our elements have been reworked and recycled, or how many sources did this matter come from before it uh, coalesced to form our solar system, beloved planet Earth, and in turn, you and me. Regards, Dermot. Mm. Uh, yeah, I like that. Um, lots. And the lots is the answer, actually, because <laughs> uh, you can't really... You, what you can do, and, and I guess what astronomers do, is assume a fairly constant rate of stars being born and dying and all the other stuff happening, the, the, the things that Dermot mentions as uh, producing the higher order elements, the more, more massive elements, uh, remembering that um, I think in the inside of normal stars, you can only form elements up to iron in the periodic table. And to go beyond that, you need much more high, high energy processes like, um, like supernova explosions, like colliding neutron stars. Uh, those are the ones that produce the higher order elements, the, the, the higher ones in the periodic table. So um, if you look, if you take a world like ours or a solar system like ours, 
and look at the relative abundances of all those elements, what it's telling you is uh, it's yeah, it's telling you that that these processes have happened, and it, in a way, it's measuring how long they've happened for, uh, rather than how many individual explosions, how many individual supernovae, how many individual st- dying stars need to have gone through it. So you assume a kind of production rate of the elements from these various processes. And it, it, in fact, what I'm trying to do is turn the argument on its head, because this is the way we use to measure the ages of stars, basically. Hmm. You look at the relative abundances of the elements within the atmosphere of a star, and it gives you uh, a, a measure which is fairly complicated because stars are different. They've got you know different characteristics. But it, in general, gives you a measure of the age of a star. So the fewer uh, elements that are in it, the earlier you know that star formed in the history of the universe. Oh, so all yes. this churning's going on. The elements are being produced by all these different processes. And so as time goes on, new stars have richer and richer atmospheres in terms of the abundance of, of the heavier elements. Okay. Wow. All right. There you are, Dermot. Um, good question. We're getting some great questions today. All right. Um, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here. Fred Watson there. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Uh, to our next question, Fred, uh, this is a real quick one, and uh, we don't have a name, but we'll um, you'll have to listen real close. This is a fast one. Is the universe expanding into itself? Okay. Did you catch that? Yeah, I did. Is the universe expanding into itself? What? <laughs> I, my only guess is that that was an Australian I heard yeah. yeah, it was an Australian accent, but we don't know who or where, but um, thanks for the question. It is one of the theories, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, the, the normal definition of the universe is everything that we can observe or see, mm. but that's been kind of overcome because if we could observe other universes, then <laughs> it's not a universe. Um, so... I think it's possible that the universe may be expanding into itself if you postulate that our universe includes higher dimensions that we can't yet detect. So if you think of the universe sitting in a five-dimensional space, which by the original definition of universe must belong to the universe, uh, the universe is expanding into that five-dimensional, fifth-dimensional space, then you then, yeah, maybe it is expanding into itself. But um, it's a question that we can't really answer. Um, all we can measure is that the universe is expanding because yeah. we we can see the different distance between galaxies increasing. Uh, and we we know that it has done because of things like the fact that the the flash of the Big Bang, which we can still see, is not brilliantly visible light, it's um, it's redshifted to be microwaves because of the expansion of the universe. So, so there's plenty of evidence that the universe is expanding, but that's all we can measure. We can't say, all right, is the, does the universe have an edge? Hmm. Uh, is it expanding into something else? There's no observations we can make that would 
physically let us detect that. Um, some people think that if you look closely at the temperature fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background radiation, the flash of the Big Bang, then you might see evidence of other universes. And in fact, I think Roger Penrose authored a paper a few years ago that postulated that um, because he saw what he thought was a circular feature in the in the uh, in the pattern of slightly higher and slightly lower temperature regions in the in the cosmic microwave background radiation. But I don't think many people believed it. Uh, so I think it was very controversial. Um, so yeah, what the universe is expanding into is as yet an unknown question. So okay. maybe it is expanding into itself and maybe not. There you go. Um, we've lived up to our reputation of not being able to answer your question. But that's because that's because nobody knows, not because nobody I don't knows. Know. No, yeah. that's very true. <laughs> yes, yeah. good clarification that. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the question, though. Um, it's it's certainly a, a a fairly common topic which a lot of people speculate about. So uh, good to get the question. Uh, this question comes from Rachel in South Yorkshire. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I love your podcast and finally plucked up the courage to send you a question. Oh, thank you. What is the booty's void? Is it related to dark energy or dark matter? And is it expanding? Uh, could you see other galaxies if you were in it? Thanks, Rachel. Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, we have talked about the booty's void before, but not not for a while. Uh, that's right. Um um, we have. Uh, it's usually called the Boatis void. Is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I knew. I knew I got that wrong, but I thought I'll just. No. I'll just stick to my guns. You know, you've got to, Andrew. The, the, all I'm saying is, um, booty sounds like something you buy for, you know, a, for a baby. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Boatis is, if I remember, it's the charioteer, isn't it? Boatis. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, I think it's, a, it's a constellation. Um, our our uh, little granddaughter. Uh, Felicity is just starting to get her mouth around words, and and um, she she's uh, learned how to say shoes and socks, but it comes out as shh shh for shoes and <laughs> for socks. It's so cute. Uh, it's very cute. Yeah, mm. yeah. And and she can't say bird, but she says buck, buck, because they got chickens, so that's a bird. Buck, mm, that's good. <laughs> Kids are amazing. They are indeed, yeah. Oh. I'll, I'll refrain from telling you what all my kids call different things, but they were very entertaining. <laughs> it is entertaining. I love the, 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 what, Just mention one. My eldest son, James, um, uh, when first introduced to a helicopter, called it hopper dopper uh, <laughs> because uh, that's the kind of noise it made. <laughs> that's good. really good. I like yeah, it. Yeah, it's neat, yeah. isn't it? And because they do hop as well. Anyway, it was only... anyway. It's very young. Uh, okay, but back to the Boaties void, <laughs> or the Booties void, sometimes known as the Great Nothing. I love that. Yeah. So it's a region uh, of space uh, in the direction of the constellation Boaties, uh, and it's uh, it's got very few galaxies in it, uh, which is why it's called a void. Um, it's very, very large uh, with a radius of 62 megaparsecs. Now, uh, a parsec is 3.23, is it, million? Sorry, 3.23 light years. So that's 62 times 3.23 million light years. That is very big, um, you know, in the re in the region of uh, 500, 600 million, something more like that. Uh, see, wait a minute, let me do that sum again. 
<laughs> that's the uh, that's the diameter rather than the radius there. So you're talking about a huge void in space. Now, voids uh, in space without galaxies typically are about 100 million light years. So we're talking about something much bigger than that, um, of the order of three or four times bigger. So uh, um, that makes it unusual. And the, the, the usual region, sorry, the usual usual reason for voids, uh, this, and Rachel's put a finger on this, uh, is the cosmic web, this uh, honeycomb of basically we see them as galaxies, clusters of galaxies, strings of galaxies, filaments of galaxies, uh, which define this structure, uh, which has empty spaces in the middle, uh, the cosmic web. And typically those uh, those honeycomb voids are about 100 million light years across. So the Boates void is bigger. Um, and um, I'm not sure whether anybody understands the reasons for that. Um, uh, here's here's a, a one thrown into the mix uh, once again from our old friend Wikipedia. It's mm-hmm. been theorised that the Bortis void was formed from the merging of smaller voids, much like the way in which soap bubbles coalesce to form larger bubbles. There you are. Ah. Uh, that would account for the small number of galaxies that po- populate a roughly tube-shaped region running through the middle of the void. So, yeah, a re- really interesting uh, thing the the dark matter connection, Andrew, is that we think that the the structure of the cosmic web was laid down in the very early history of the universe by strings of dark matter, and they formed a kind of gravitational nucleus for strings of galaxies to form around them because they they pulled hydrogen in, hydrogen yeah. being the raw material of galaxies and stars. So um, uh, so there there is a, definitely a link there. Uh, perhaps less obviously with with dark energy, though, because as I said a few minutes ago, we think dark energy is constant throughout the universe, whereas dark matter de- definitely isn't. It's blo- mm. blobbing about everywhere. Okay. Thank you, Rachel, and um, great that you finally plucked up the courage. I didn't think we were that scary, but um, yeah, appreciate the, appreciate the question uh, about the Bortes void. Uh, and finally, a, uh, a bit of a speculator from Robert. Hello, Fred and Andrew. It's Robert from the Netherlands. I never miss an episode from you guys. I always love listening to the podcast. Thank you for making it. I have got a little thought experiment for you. Let's consider for a second that the space travel is so fast you can go anywhere you want instantly. And you guys are going to have to start a new colony for humanity. What location would you choose? Would it be Jupiter or Mars or maybe a distant galaxy or, you know, would it be low gravity, something with a a wolf rayet star or like black hole or something very quiet? Uh, What throw items would you bring? And would you bring the wife? (laughs) Love to hear the answer. Thank you so much. Take care. (laughs) Would would you take the wife? Um... Not not going there. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think Robert, we might we might draw the line at going there because naturally we will both be taken by our respective partners. <laughs> and I don't think I'd get to decide. No, that's right. <laughs> no, quite right too. Absolutely right. Uh, so you could go anywhere you liked instantaneously. Yeah, I, I do like. Go? Well, that that kind of if you can do that, 
Um, Defeats the purpose, really. Um, what it means is that you could, uh, having sifted through the 5,000 known exoplanets that we now know exist around uh, the sun's vicinity in our galaxy, mm -hmm. um, and there are probably many more because we think every star has probably at least one planet. So what you do is you sift, sift through all that and pick out the most Earth-like one that you can find. Exactly and, what I'm thinking. And you go there. <laughs> yeah. Aren't there a couple in the Kepler system? Yeah, the, the, there's a few. There are a few candidates. There's nothing that you could describe describe perfectly as Earth uh, 101 or Earth Earth. Uh, sorry, Earth version two. Earth two. Earth two. That's right. Two point zero. Um, Earth 101 might be a bit further down the track, but uh, yes, we 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 do see evidence that um, there are some Earth-like planets. I don't think any of them, though, have been discovered at the same distance from a normal star as we are from the sun. So mm. we're still sort of looking. Um, but pretty well anywhere else in the universe uh, to start a colony, and that's not an idea I'm very fond of anyway, but no. pretty well anywhere else is, is awful. You know, it's just not. Um, somewhere that uh, humans would want to be. The nearest thing in the solar system, the nearest what you might call benign place, would be the planet Mars. Yep. It's arguable that Mars is less benign than the moon, though. Even though the moon has no atmosphere, Mars has a bit of an atmosphere, but not enough to make it worthwhile. It's only 0.6% of the atmosphere atmospheric pressure of Earth, and it's mostly carbon dioxide anyway. Um, so you, you can't really do much with that. Um, the moon has less of an atmosphere, uh, but it's nearer to the sun, so it's, you get more solar energy on the moon. Um, yeah, and those are the only two places that you could really think about putting large numbers of humans down. Yeah. Uh, once you get out to, you know, other well, Venus, too high in atmospheric pressure, too hot. Titan atmospheric pressure again is high, uh, too cold, um, horrible atmosphere. Um, again, carbon dioxide less with methane and ethane. And don't drink the water. Don't drink the water because it's natural gas, liquefied natural gas. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. The, we are so tuned, finely tuned to a planet like ours that it really isn't worth looking for anything else other than Earth version two. Yeah. Uh, which they are looking for. They just haven't found one. They've, yeah. had a, they've had a couple of close calls, but the planets are much larger than Earth. And so even if you could go there and it had trees and lakes and fish, yeah. um, the gravity would be a problem. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. There's all of that. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, the, the, the life on it, let's say you found an Earth, that Earth-like planet that was double the size of this one. Yeah, and it had animal life, like it would be very uh, inhospitable to us because we are we would be so out of tune with the reality of it, and we yeah. So if we did though, would it would over time we uh, as human beings uh, be able to adapt? Well, evolution kind of is comes still still going on, but you're talking about a lo very long time there. Yeah. So my my real answer to Robert would be. Um, you stay not very far from Earth and you build a megastructure, um, which I think is, you know, if, if, if you've got the 
scientific ability to go anywhere instantaneously, you're not going to bat an eyelid at building um, a halo world, you know, one where you've got artificial rotation. Oh, that's uh, a good idea. Provides gravity and, um, and that holds onto an atmosphere and all of the above. Uh, beloved of many science fiction authors. You could, go, you could go and park that out near the James Webb Telescope. Uh, there were, yeah, wherever you feel like it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And that build my good spot. You calm waters out there. <laughs> well, there would be if you built your own oceans as well, you know, <laughs> do, do all that. Yes, yeah. indeed. I just saw a story the other day about a bloke who's built a, an underground silo um, for, you know, the end of the world. And it's <laughs> it's multi-level. It's like from that uh, TV series silo. He's built something like that. Okay. Quite bizarre. But, um, yeah, in space, yeah, why not? It'll happen one day. You know that, Fred, don't you? I do. Mm. I hope it will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Robert, thank you. Um, my choice would be Mars, just in case you're wondering. And yes, yes take yes. a wife because she loves cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to find a way to stay warm somehow. Uh, thanks, Robert. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. Much appreciated. Don't forget, if you have questions for us, uh, we uh, would love to hear from you. Just go to our website and send us the question through the AMA tab or the send us your voice message tab on the right-hand side. As long as you've got a device with a microphone, uh, you're all set. And don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from because we love to know. And uh, uh, welcome aboard to those newbies who are sending questions for this particular episode. Much appreciated. Uh, and thank you, Fred, as always, for uh, filling in the blanks for us and creating more. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, in a state of total confusion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the way we love to live on Space Nuts. All right, Fred, thanks so much. We'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. Sounds great, Andrew. Take care. See ya. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio for um, turning up today and doing the usual. Yep, that's it. There, oh, Nothing. Uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, as always, thanks for your company. Catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.